Pastor Bobby asked me tonight to continue his series on Ephesians. And so, uh, so that's what I'm going to do. So if you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians tonight. Chapter 5. He's been going through a series on Ephesians, getting real close to the end. And I know uh, he wants to wrap it up over the next couple of weeks. So he asked me to fill in the last uh, six weeks. The front part of Ephesians is full, chock full of wonderful, deep theology. And then the back part, the last three chapters, is full of a ton of practical uh, kind of how you live, how you walk out, all this stuff they talked about the first three chapters. Now here's how it's applied, here's how you walk it out. And so Pastor Bobby's been using this, uh, this idea of walking, comes from Ephesians 4.1 where he says, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you have received. Understanding that the word calling there doesn't speak to a vocation. You know, we, we all want to know more about our calling. What's our calling? What, what are we called to be? What are we called to do? Scripture speaks a lot about calling, but he speaks a lot about calling in this respect. You're called from likeness, from, from darkness to light. You're called into the kingdom of God. You're called into a walk and a relationship with Him. And so when he talks about calling, so often we are so concerned about our personal unique calling, and God honors those, and He made us unique, and He puts us in places of effectiveness, places of, of, of value, and uses certainly our lives. But I think we spend too much time talking about personal calling and not enough talking about what it means to walk in the kingdom of God, what that calling is about, how we do that. And oftentimes I think if we're walking as God calls us to walk, if we're growing in the walk and the calling that He has for us, then we're going to follow and find those paths of calling be a lot less to find. Sometimes I think our focus just to be on, on, on our Christian walk, on our, on our Christian life, on, on what he calls us to be and do as believers. And so here, Pastor Bobby's kind of taking this and broken it up to a walk of unity, a walk of maturity, a walk in the light, a walk in wisdom, a walk in the spirit. And then tonight, I'm going to take a few moments and speak on a walk of harmony. A walk of harmony. And specifically, I'm going to take... Uh, Four different significant key relationships. And just spend a few moments on each one of them. You know, there's a question that was asked a few years back on what, what is it, if you could have one thing, what would that be? You may be surprised by some of the answers. It, it, it wasn't so much fame or money. And we always can always use, no matter where we are in life, you can always use $5,000 more. Isn't that true? Where, and when you get there, you need about $5,000 more, you know. So it wasn't money, it wasn't fame, it wasn't, it wasn't all those things that you and I would normally equate to it. The number one answer of what people wanted more in their life was peace. Was peace. The very thing that people in the world are longing for and the church desperately needs is the very thing that God calls us to walk in. To walk in peace, to walk in harmony. And so I'm going to go through these four key relationships Church, marriage, family, and the marketplace, in that order as, this, as Paul breaks it down. And I just want you to see kind of a common thread that every relationship is going to have at least three things as we go through it. Every relationship is going to be focused and based on God. Let me just go through this. It's gonna, you're going to see God flowing in and out, through and around 
the background example, mirroring it. It, it. He is the basis. He is the focus. He is the intent of every relationship. Secondly, you're going to see in every relationship it's mutual. There's no one side to a relationship. By definition, relationships are, are more than one. And so to enter into a relationship and to walk into peace, there has to be a mutual expectation, a mutual uh, response that both parties have. You know, we often talk about conflict never being one-sided. It's easy, it's easy to think of conflict as the other person's fault, but it's never one-sided. It's always, you know, it takes two to tango. It's always two. Well, that's true in everything. Walking in God's blessing is, is about relationship, and it's, it's more than one. Experiencing joy in relationships is, is always more than one. Secondly, just our third here, relationships are designed by God to do two things. To bring us joy and peace, and to bring Him glory. To bring us joy and peace in our life, and to bring Him glory. And so let me just take a few moments, and, and here's what I'm going to do. Instead of going through and reading this whole set of Scripture, I'm just going to read it kind of section by section. And as I read it, we'll just go through that. So the first focus is a focus on the church. It's found in chapter 5. In verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we go back up a little bit, you can see where um, in verse 18 it says, Instead be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your hearts uh, to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father, to God the Father for everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the context for this idea of submitting is the church. Who do we sing to? Who do we, who do we come giving a psalm or hymn? We don't do it to just anybody we see on the street. That would get a little embarrassing. We do it to the church, right? We're doing it to one another, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So the context for this idea of submitting is the church. The word submission is a word that we all love deeply. You know, we kind of, it, it has this bad reputation because we think of it in terms of coming under someone else's control. Like we're, we're being forced to submit. The word submit is actually, it's, it's a military term. And it speaks of troops or divisions coming in line. It speaks of, it just speaks of order. So when we talk about submission, we talk about coming under a godly order. I think one of the greatest problems we have in relationship today is dysfunction and disorder right you know it's everybody's out for themselves and and there's no sense of real coming under god's appointed order and design and so everyone's kind of out for themselves and so where there is disorder there's chaos Therefore, God has established by His grace over our lives, and, and submission is a, is a work of grace in our own lives, that God's established an order that, uh, uh, for all relationships, an order to bring about good and to result in His glory and honor. And so there's this blanket kind of statement over the church that we're to walk in submission. Some, some uh, scripture says, be subject to one another, to submit to one another. It literally means 
to be able to come underneath each other. It's a passive, it's a middle passive voice that means in the Greek, it's voluntary. Submission is not something God is, is, it's not something that somebody else is demanding you do. Godly submission is something we do voluntarily out of our own heart. It speaks of humility, it speaks of selflessness, and it's something that we voluntarily come under each other. It's called in the church to submit. So the idea would be this, if we're just taking the flow through this, be filled with the Spirit. A life full of the Spirit is a life that's full of songs of gratitude. That's the song of our heart. When, when, when the Spirit of God is filling us, the song of our heart is a song of thanksgiving, it's gratitude, it's worship unto Him. Out of that place, then we come in and we submit to one another. Out of that, we voluntarily come in a humble heart with a concern to serve others more than we ourselves need to be served. You know, there's a, there's a um, revival that took place in 1906 called Azusa Street. Anybody familiar with that? Azusa Street broke out in L.A. The leader of that was an African-American man, uh, William Seymour. No formal education. Was invited to preach at church. He stood up in front of that church and spoke on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They kicked him out of the church, and so he went to a house and began to, to meet with those that would just gather with him. And as he preached, literally he stood at the house where he was invited in. He'd stand on the porch, and people began to gather. And what was unique about this move as this thing began to take off more and more is it was marked by a, a, um, a Pentecost-type experience, an Acts 2 type of experience, where people were being filled with the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders were happening, miracles were happening. But it was blacks and whites and Hispanics and Asians. It was, it was old and young. It was rich and poor. It, was this, it wouldn't be as, as uh, profound today, but 100-plus years ago, that was incredibly profound to see that type of thing. You just knew it was God, not just by the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, but by what was happening in the mixture of those that were gathering together. It quickly outgrew that. Matter of fact, the, the stories go that the, it got so, uh, it, it, it became so popular and got so many people attending that the, the porch fell in. So they went to a, a church that they were renting for like $8 a month and, and the thing filled up and for, uh, for years... God was pouring himself out in this, in, in this group that was gathering there. As a matter of fact, many of the Pentecostal movements today, the Church of God, Church of God uh, in Christ, the Assembly of God, many of them were birthed out of this, out of this movement. And the, the interesting, I say all that to say this, the interesting thing is what took place to begin to limit the move of God. You know, there's always two sides to that. One is what welcomes the move of God in our own life, in our church, in our workplace, wherever. And then what hinders the work of God? And historians say this, the very thing that hindered the work of God was this, was there had begun a number of things, but there had begun to be a number of factions that began to create in that. At one point, their declaration in the writings was that, that race is under the blood, that we're all equal in the blood. But somewhere along the way, there's a group that said, now, 
Why, why are those Asian folks able to do that and we're not? Why, why are those Caucasian, why are those African Why? And it became this thing where it began to separate around race. And then crazy disputes broke out. An example would be that there was a discussion and a fraction around should we wear neckties or not. It's true. There's churches that begin to arise around it that begin to compete for the people. And the very thing that welcomed the move of God was, was this place of unity where God broke out. It was a hunger and there was a prayer and there was a lot that went to that place. But the thing that, that broke it down was disunity was a point when we begin to think more about ourselves than our others. We stopped submitting to one another. was the very thing where the blessing of God began to lift over that house and over that place. Now the fruit of it we still experience today and get to enjoy today. But the reality of what God could have done deeper was broken by the fact of a lack of harmony, a lack of submission. Scripture says this, that we are to submit, fulfill the Spirit out of that place. We submit to one another. We care about the needs of others more than we care about the needs of ourselves. And if I'm caring more about your needs than you are mine, and you are caring more about mine than yours, and that breaks out in a church where that takes place, then God's in a place where He can move supernaturally among a people. Because where there's unity, it commands a blessing. And God's blessings are already supernatural. They're never natural. They're always supernatural. They're always something we can't do on our own effort or they don't have the mark of God on them. So this place where the church needs to break out in a unity that's, that, that, that the outside world looks at and sees a difference. Philippians 1.4, I just love the way it captures this. So I'm just, let me just take a minute to read this. Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, 1-4. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement with being united in Christ, any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete. And here's what he says. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit, one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking at your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. That captures this verse to submit to one another. The church is to be a place where there is mutual submission. The church is a place where we come in and we're not just saying, I have a ton of needs. I need my needs met. I can't hear anything else. I just need my needs met. Now, maybe that's where we come into the church. That's not where we stay. Or we come in broken. We come in struggling. But it's not where we stay. We mature into a place where we come in saying, who can I bless tonight? God's got a word for somebody here that, that, that I, I just know he wants to minister through me. What word can I share with someone? What encouragement? How can, I, how can I serve somebody else's need tonight? How can I pray with someone? And the church becomes a place where we walk in ready to be used by him. Ready to serve somebody else. Ready to give. God calls us to live in harmony in the church. In some ways, a church has been a place of great division over the years. There's denominations that have split literally hundreds of times over doctoral differences. Yet God calls us to walk in a place of harmony and peace and unity. 
Second relationship is a relationship of marriage. It's a relationship of marriage. It says, so wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is a Savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with a washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So it flows from this place of all Christians submit to one another. That includes husbands and wives in the house. There's mutual submission in the house. And then he goes on to say, then wives submit to their husbands, and husbands love their wives. And I just want to talk about the, for just a moment, because this is a scripture that is so easy to speak on and yet so hard to live. And I know it's hard to live because I walk it out every day, number one. And number two, or at least faced with the tension of that. And the second is because I recognize all around me marriages that are struggling and in trouble. And so we recognize that there is a lot of disorder in the church. There's a lot of chaos. I'm sorry, not the church, although there's some in the church too. There's a lot of there's a lot of chaos in the home. There's a lot of dysfunction in the home today. And it's not just the world. It's as bad in the church, marriages in the church, as it is in the world. And so Scripture calls husbands and wives uh, to some responsibility. And, and let me just speak to the wives here for a moment. He first speaks to the wives about mutual submission or submission here. And it flows. It, it, you guys know that in the, and maybe you don't, in, in the Greek, there was never divisions in books. A letter was written as a letter. We have later built, built uh, chapters and sections to them, but that was never there. But there was never punctuation. So the original Greek just reads as words coming across. So we later have had that. So these things flow together. The reason I'm saying that is so that we can look back and see how the flow of this is. So the flow reads like this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing to one another. Make music in your heart. Always giving thanks to God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives also to your husbands. The word submit's not in there. It's just a flow of just like you're submitting to one another. Wives, come under your husband. Wives, come under your husbands. It's just a natural flow of a wife that's full of the Spirit, heart full of gratitude, walking in unity and peace in relationships around them, 
the natural flow is just bring that in your own home. Walk in that level of peace and submission in your own home. It's the same word used here. It simply means to come under, to bring order, to come under. It's a military term, same, same way. But it says uh, these simple words, as to the Lord, which are very important. Because that tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that, wives, your first relationship is to God. Your first submission is to God. Matter of fact, that relationship supersedes any other relationship, particularly your husband or your children. That relationship is critical and key. If that's out of order, then this relationship's never going to be fully in order. So it's as to the Lord. It's as my relationship is with the Lord, and I'm submitted under Him, so I bring that in submission to my husband. Second thing is it says this. It implies that as we submit as a wife, as you submit to your husband, you're touching the Father. Or there's a touch of the Father. So it is, it is inviting, it's, it's, it's a stepping into the blessings of God. It's stepping into the order that God's established in the home, and it welcomes the blessing of God over your marriage and over your family. It's unto the Lord. So, uh, wives, you're called to submit first, and then later he used the word respect. Because I think there's times when we can, I think there's times as, as wives where you can submit to your husbands but not fully respect him. You can submit and not fully respect the, the, the decision that he's making. Wives are called to respect their husbands. Which means, wives, be your husband's biggest cheerleader. You know, if you've gone through the, the five love languages, you're familiar with those, it's been around for a long time. You know, most men, and, and this is a general statement, so this is not going to apply to everybody, but most men, their number one love language is words of affirmation. Second is touch. First, sometimes those are switched. I'm just going to leave that alone. Uh, I'm not going to look at my wife right now. The number one need, or the, one, the way men receive love, typically in that definition is through words of affirmation. Why? Because wives are designed by God to respect their husbands, which means there's words of affirmation, there's honoring of their husband. And so God created men with that to need that, so they can receive that love from their wives. Husbands are called to something very different. They're called to a, what Scripture calls headship. And it's interesting here, headship as you read through this, is not at all applying, or not, certainly not necessarily applying to authority over. It's speaking to responsibility for. See, those are different. Authority over is a place of privilege, of position. Responsible, responsible for is a place of service. And matter of fact, he uses this illustration. He said, man, you're to lead your house as Christ leads a church. And just as Christ is the head, you're the head. And just as Christ gave his life, he laid down his life in care. So you're called to lay down your life for your wife. It's a place that we're called as men, not to a position of privilege, but to a position of service. 
So wives are to submit, men are to lay down their lives. Matter of fact, the unique thing is Jesus taught on leadership, and he taught that the greatest leader is the servant. So if we have headship, leadership, servant, all go together. So the greatest leader among you, the greatest leader in the household should be the husband. So the idea of a husband coming home, putting his feet and saying, wife, you take care of stuff. That's not biblical. That's your role, that's not my role. Well, I don't see that in Scripture. We have traditional roles, and some of those function, and we need to work out who takes care of the checkbook and who does this. I mean, that's just function. But as men, it doesn't mean we disconnect from those responsibilities. We engage in those responsibilities because it's part of serving our wives. Matter of fact, the love language, if you flip it around, and, and what are women's primary love languages? Quality time and acts of service, typically, or gifts. If I come home ahead of my wife, if I clean things up and I have dinner waiting and I'm sitting on the deck ready to have some quality time, I will have scored a 10. Right there. Is that true, Kelly? Oh, yeah. That's the laying down of my life for my wife in a place of service. It's certainly providing, it's protecting, it's doing all those things, but it's also the daily things of just laying down our lives. As a matter of fact, Scripture defines it this way. He defines it with, in, in the way of love, purity, and care. I need to be careful of my time here. But when he talks about headship, it's defined by how we love our wives, how we care for our wives, and the purity at which um, we lead our family. In fact, there's a great book where the tagline, I don't know the name of the book because I couldn't get past the tagline. The tagline was, what if marriage is not about our happiness but about our holiness? I couldn't get past the cover. That was a conviction enough for me right there. I'd just look at that and say, okay, I repent, God. Because marriage, in our minds, is all about, oh, this is going to be wonderful and how great, and you know, it's all about me and, and all this stuff. It's how happy. Marriage really is about holiness. It's about learning to lay down our life for someone else. Isn't it? It's about working out Christ in us far more than it is about making us happy. Along the journey, there's lots of moments of great happiness. But that's not our goal. Our goal is one of loving, serving, caring, presenting our wives like Christ is presenting the church. Call to every family for wives to submit and honor and respect their husbands. And for husbands, see, it takes two to tango, right? It, for husbands to love their lives in a way that it's not, in a way that it's not demanding, in, in a way that's serving. In a way it's not about me, it's a way it's all, you know, being head, being head is really all about your wife. Really all about your wife. It's not about you. It's not about you. And so we mutually submit, full of the Holy Spirit, we mutually submit to one another. We carry that in the household. Wives submit to their husbands, respect their husbands. Husbands, as as head, we're called to love, care, even purify our wife. If you want to 
good book that really describes the roles of marriage a lot more. Love and Respect is a great book. If anybody's seen that or read that, it's a good book. The fourth relationship, excuse me, the third relationship here is the relationship of parents. It's a relationship of parents. And it's in Ephesians 6. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, and it, that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life in the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The next relationship is a relationship of the family. And again, there's expectations on both sides. Expectations of children. Expectations of parents or fathers. The expectation on children here are to obey. Another word we love. Obey. Obey means to stand under. It means to, literally to come under someone else's authority. So again, it, it carries the same military term as around the battlefield, somebody above us gives an order and we come under that order. We come under that. Parents, we have a responsibility, I believe, to teach our children to obey. If they learn to honor, to obey and honor your authority in the household, then they're going to learn much easier to, to, to honor and obey God. And not just that. They're going to learn to honor in the workplace, in military, in a classroom, in any place that they go into with police, with those in authority, any place they go into a political arena, they're going to learn to honor those that are in authority over them because they learned it in the household. The household is God's great blessing. It, it, it's, his, it's his place of, of testing and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And for our children, it's a place of them learning to honor their parents and obey their parents because if they walk out of that household learning that, then it carries them the rest of their life. Matter of fact, as you go through the commandments, and, and it's made reference here, that's the first commandment that has a promise to it. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. And the days of your life may be lengthened. I think certainly God brings a supernatural blessing to those that are honoring their father and mother, but I also believe there is a natural uh, cause and effect at work there that is, as, as we are learning to honor those in authority, we're walking that, our, our life's going to be long. It's going to be prosperous because we're walking out a principle that we learned in the household. You with me? Okay. So, so children are called to obey. And Scripture says they're called to obey for this is right. And it's not just this is the right thing to do. It's the God thing to do. It's, it's the godly order they set in place. And then he goes from, from this place of, of obedience to what I think would be from an action of obedience to a, to a place of, of an attitude of the heart when he says, honor your father and mother. It's an attitude. Because not just about the action. Again, you can, you can submit and, and, not, and not respect. You can obey and not honor. Right? We can sit down on the outside but be standing up on the inside. And so our children can obey, but in their heart, not honor. It's an attitude. 
It's an attitude. So it's learning that place of an attitude. Or proper attitude. And fathers or parents, I, I think that can really be used either way. Fathers are called not to provoke their children in anger. The word anger there is not a, um, it's not a temporary irritation or being upset with a parent. Every child will do that. The moment that that child cannot have what they want, when they want it, they're going to be angry. They're going to be upset. They're going to be irritated, right? Any amen can come from back there. It's just fine. This is an anger that leads to rebellion. Fathers, don't be demanding over your children. Don't be harsh with your children. Don't push them to a place of rebellion. Because that rebellion is not just on them, it's on you. Now, they've got responsibility for their own actions, but you have responsibility in that too. So there's not that, that call to, to provoke or to exasperate or to drive them to a place of rebellion, but instead to bring them up in discipline and instruction. See, I love these two because I think they go, go together. If we discipline, we've got to give instruction. If we give some instruction, there needs to be some, some accountability to that instruction. And I think you can't have one without the other here. Let me give you some examples real quickly. If you tell a child that's spoken back to you, don't speak back to me and, run, and send them to the room. You've disciplined them. But they don't have a context for why that's wrong. At some point, you need to sit down and they understand a biblical reason why they don't talk back to you. Why that dishonors. Why God wouldn't have us dishonor one another. Why our words are powerful. Why their life and death is on the tongue. We, we have to be able to describe them. They have to have a biblical context for why they do what they do. If they don't have that, then they may do it when they're home, but as soon as they leave the house, if they don't have a concept, they're going to do whatever they think is right because they don't have a foundation for why they do what they do. You guys with me? So every discipline needs instruction. Now how and when you do that is up to you. But we never discipline in anger. Fathers, don't discipline in anger. That's a great time for the up to your bedroom, sit in the timeout chair, whatever it is. That's not about them, it's about you. That's allowing you a time to, com- to calm down, catch your breath, get your mind right because you're about to explode, and then come back to it. And then you can discipline with instruction. If not, then you're just throwing out discipline. And you've got to go back and clean it up later. We don't discipline in anger because we're going to be pushed to those points and are pushed to those points. We don't discipline by raising our voices either. We guard it. Don't raise your voice in anger. Fathers, parents, don't raise your voice. Guard that. Raise your voices if you're shouting for them because they're doing great. Raise your voices in celebration with them. Don't raise your voice in anger. Guard that moment, that time. Because it's so easy to go there. Instruction with discipline. And if you give them instruction, there needs to be a consequence attached to it. If you say don't play in the street, and they run out the street and you don't do anything, and there's no consequence to that, then they're not going to learn that instruction. There needs to be both of those interacting and working together. They're disciplined, they understand why they're disciplined, they get it. They get it really in their hearts. And they get the instruction, and there is a consequence, good or bad, there's a consequence attached to that. You know, a child that's not disciplined, statistics say that they are more insecure, more self-centered, which would be obvious, 
and more miserable than children that are. And I'm running out of time, so let me just go to the last one here. The last one is has to do with harmony in the marketplace, and it specifically talks about slaves and masters. And it says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win the favor when your eyes on them, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone with whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or free. And masters, treat your servants in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both the master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In that day and time, about a third to a half of the Roman uh, population were slaves. And most of them worked at home. Matter of fact, um, po- uh, historians estimate that there's about 60 million slaves in the time. Most of them worked at the house. A lot of them were highly educated. A lot of them, because they were uh, in wars, were captured and brought in. They were not uneducated. They were highly educated. And the interesting thing is the gospel went first to the slaves. And so Paul gives this, and, and, um, and in most cases, in a matter of fact, in some cases, they were almost treated like, like an employee. So oftentimes we use it from a marketplace perspective because that's our closest application to, to that set of scripture in, in our culture. And so it, it, it basically is saying here is as a slave, or in our context, as an employee, there's a way in which you conduct yourselves. You're not trying to win the favor of that boss. You're not full of flattery. You're not just saying what you think they ought to, to what think what they want to hear. You're not doing it right when they're looking, and then as soon as they turn around, you stop doing it. You're not playing those games. You're not, you're not doing all the political stuff. You're there, and you're loyal. You're sincere. You're not double-minded. You're doing things as you would to the Lord. You're working hard. You're, you're giving yourself wholeheartedly to that. And then you have these slave owners that became believers and all of a sudden they were brothers and Christians and it became kind of how do we operate now there's equality now and so Paul says let's just treat them treat them like you would want to be treated as as employers treat your employees like you want to be treated value them honor them because it's the same their master and your master is up in heaven, and there's, a, and there's no favoritisms. You're not any better than they are, is basically saying. So don't, don't even think that. Treat them in a way that you yourself would want to be treated. So those are four relationships that God's called us into that we live in day in and day out. It's our relationships in the church, relationships that we have uh, in home with marriage and family, and then certainly where we live in in the marketplace. And 
And God's called us to a place of harmony, a place of peace. Matter of fact, God's called us to a place of peace and a place of honoring Him in each one of those relationships. And so as we close tonight, I just want us to take a moment and reflect on those relationships. You know, most of us may not have walls like this in those relationships, but we have some knee walls up. We have some things that have been built in our own hearts. They may be in our home. They may be with our, our, our family. They may be in the workplace. They may be at church. may even not be in this church because you came from another and you're carrying stuff from where you came from. They could be here. But we're carrying some stuff that, that is not, it, it, it's not what God, it's not God's best. And it's just limiting the work of God in you. It's just, it, it's just putting up, it's, it's like a hose that is running, that, that, that water's running, but then you, you move it around the corner, it kinks a little bit, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're cleaning the car and then you don't have anything. You know, it's just those little kinks in the hose of our own life that's preventing the flow of the Holy Spirit uh, like He desires and like we desire Him. And so would you stand up with me? Close your eyes just as a moment of reflection. And ask yourself, are there any of those relationships that you're not really walking in the peace that you desire? Are there any of those relationships where you don't feel like you're honoring God or that relationship is honoring God? Are there any of those relationships where you really need God to work in? I just want to see God do something supernaturally right here in, in our closing moment. If, if, if you can recognize one or more of those relationships, can you just raise your hand? With your eyes closed. It's not about anybody else. It's really about you. Father, right now I pray for Lord, every hand that's raised. Lord, you know the details of the, the conflicts, the situations, the relationships. I thank you that you're Lord of those relationships right now in the name of Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you're a God of reconciliation. And we invite you right now, Holy Spirit, we invite you into each one of those relationships. And Lord, we ask that you'll take what's out of order and put it in, in order. And Lord, we just say, let it begin in our own hearts. But don't worry, let somebody else take the first step. Lord, we take the first step. Lord, let it begin in our own hearts right now. Father, change the hardness in us. Change the indifference, Father. Change the critical hearts and critical mind, Lord. Change, Father, the stubborn. Lord, just break that down in us right now. Father, we humble ourselves before You. And Father, we desire You to move as only You can move. And Lord, now we ask on the other side of that, Lord, that You'll move on, on the other relationship, the other person, the other group. Be Lord right now over each one of these situations. Be glorified right now in each one of these situations. And Father, come and release a blessing. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Would you look up at me? I just want to bless you. And
turn it over to John. Anything that he needs to say or do before we close. I want to bless you. I want to bless your homes right now. May there be places of joy and peace. May the peace of God that passes understanding, may it be a guard about your heart and your home. In the name of Jesus. Where there's been tension, I just speak peace over that. Where there's been uh, weariness, I just speak life and refreshing and encouragement right now. In the name of Jesus. I just speak over your workplaces. I just pray those things that you put your hands to will prosper right now in the name of Jesus. I pray, Father, that, your, that, that, that our ears will be open to hear your voice. That our eyes will be open to see you. Scripture says the pure in heart shall see God. May we see you, Lord, in this hour. At work in us and around us. Father, I bless dinner tables right now. May they be places of great fun and laughter. Deeper conversations, I pray. More significant heart connections, I ask, over every relationship right now in the name of Jesus. And Father, where there's division may be broken down in the name of Jesus. We just speak revelation, restoration. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you.